0: Hello and welcome to Rock and Roll Politics, the twice weekly podcast with me, Steve Richards. Thanks so much for tuning in wherever you are in the UK and indeed around the rest of the world. And first of all, thank you to all of those who came to the great York Literary Festival event uh, on Friday. Uh, it was great that there's quite a few who listened to the podcast came. I only made the connection when they sort of spoke to me or emailed me and so on. But it was it was, it was terrific and, and brilliantly organised by Ben Fuller. There was wine afterwards, not just for me, but for everyone who came. Anyway, thank you so much. And that, in a way, is the eve of my kind of mini tour. So on Tuesday, I'm going to be in Birmingham. That's sold out with the normal rock and roll politics, not a book festival. Then on Thursday at uh, King's Place and with Boris Johnson appearing in front of the uh, select committee on Wednesday, I'm going to be one of the themes, unless it's a complete damp squib, which some of these things can be, in which case we reconfigure on the spot. These shows change sometimes during the show when fast-moving events uh, reconfigure the uh, areas in which we need to delve deep. i going to look at words and consequences. It's very interesting in politics. Uh, words can be uttered and the speaker can assume that there will be no consequences, that he or she will get away with the utterances. But in the end, such is the level of scrutiny uh, in uh, Britain, the words do catch up with leaders. And I won't only be reflecting on Johnson, but also on um, Tony Blair in relation to Iraq and Keir Starmer and others' words and consequences. There'll be unreliable predictions. We always get them wrong. Question time. Oh, yeah, so much to cram in. Oh, and the King's Place one is streaming live. So if you can't make it, uh, you can book a streaming ticket, sit down with your glass of chilled white or red or beer or whiskey, And uh, join in that way, and you'll get the chance to make your unreliable predictions as well. So with all that going on, oh yeah, by the way as well, of course, Belfast on Sunday. I'm like Bob Dylan this week, never-ending tour. Great venue in Belfast, put all the links on the blurb. Um, That'll be a very different show, kind of letter from Westminster, but hopefully the audience will... Uh, be part of a dialogue where we make sense of things, you know, in the week that the DUP gives its verdict on the um, so-called Windsor framework and and, and much more. So yeah, epic live events. Hope to see many of you at them. There are more coming up, but those are the three I kind of highlight now because we've got so much to uh, cram in in our time together. I'm just going to reflect briefly. This is the week, of course, that um, Britain, with America and others, began the war in Iraq 20 years ago. It's still very vivid in my mind, and I'm sure it is in many of your minds. And when I have um, been reading some of the reflections on uh, Tony Blair's decision, and it was a very precise decision, and it was a difficult and complex and nuanced one. It wasn't should Britain go to war, it was should Britain back America in its absolute determination to go to war in Iraq. I did hope that Keir Starmer would read some of the reflections on what happened then because they highlight the limitations of Tony Blair's style of leadership. And this is highly relevant now because in the mad way the Labour Party works, it's now Tony Blair and his more ardent admirers who um, uh, have huge influence and are running the show with Keir Starmer. Um, Keir Starmer has done something, of the many unusual and unique things he's done, it is to uh, recruit people who used to work for Tony Blair. Tony Blair didn't recruit people who worked for Harold Wilson, and Harold Wilson didn't recruit people who had been working for, I don't know, Hugh Gates or whatever, but uh, Keir Starmer has chosen to do that as part of his sort of very linear way of approaching politics. Let's turn to the election winners to guide us towards this coming election, even though the context is so different. And of course, Tony Blair was a great election winner, and that gives him a deserved authority because Labour usually loses elections. But as I say, I just want to reflect briefly on why I think Iraq highlighted the Uh, in some respects, shallow way Tony Blair uh, approaches these huge thorny issues. And let me say as a preface to this, that if he had opposed the war in Iraq, there would have been explosive consequences in a different way, politically as well. But I was always struck by a conversation I had with a former cabinet minister, Uh, I don't know if any of you remember him, he was culture secretary in the first term, Chris Smith. Anyway, after the 2001 election, Tony Blair uh, sacked Chris Smith as culture secretary. Uh, But uh, Tony Blair was very clever in um, wooing assiduously those who he had sacked, or if he had the chance to do so. Uh, He couldn't really with uh, some of the more dissident cabinet uh, members, but with uh, Chris Smith, uh, he sacked him and then invited him over for a cup of tea in number 10. And Chris Smith was somewhat taken aback to hear, and this was before September the 11th, 2001, uh, to hear Blair's analysis of the second term, at which he put in the centre, this was to Chris Smith, his absolute determination to show he could work as closely with George Bush and the Republican administration in Washington as he had done with Clinton, that he was worried that under the new Tory leadership, Ian Duncan Smith was about to become Tory leader, uh, that Tories were beginning to form close ties with Washington and this uh, Republican administration, and he wanted to block that off, and he was absolutely determined to do so. And I think that was the uh, framing in his mind that got him trapped into the war in Iraq. He was a figure framed by the 1980s when Labour lost elections, when Labour was seen as soft on defence and anti-American compared with Thatcher, who was, of course, um, revered by Reagan and the two of them used to dance together very publicly and when poor old Neil Kinnock went to see Reagan he was given about 10 minutes and he was there with Dennis Healy and the American guys got Healy's name wrong deeply insulting and blasted over the Thatcher adoring newspapers all this I think had a big impact on uh, uh, Tony Blair and His calculations when it came to Iraq, when it was clear that Bush wanted to go into Iraq, were layered and complicated, but quite shallow. He was still preoccupied by being the Prime Minister who would take Britain into the Euro. He wanted to show he was strong with America, so that if he had a referendum on the Euro, no one could claim he was just this pro-European who had turned his back on America, far from it. That's why he was quite relaxed when he was described as Bush's poodle by some newspapers, because um he wanted to be the pro-european who was also the most committed ally to the united states he wanted to retain the alliance with rupert murdoch and his newspapers he spoke to murdoch quite a lot in the build-up to the war uh, he wanted that middle england support which he assumed would be pro-war these were the many calculations he also it was completely in character it wasn't an aberration He pursued the third way, his approach to politics, uh, which meant he persuaded uh, Bush to go to the UN. Quite an achievement uh, to persuade Bush to go to the UN, fruitless. In doing so, uh, he became, Tony Blair and indeed Bush, wholly reliant on the intelligence, because they were only going to get a UN resolution. They didn't in the end anyway, if uh, they could show that uh, Saddam was building up Weapons of mass destruction again against the UN resolutions. So they became wholly reliant on the intelligence. Uh, the intelligence was qualified, as the Butler report famously highlighted, but that was uh, the only ammunition uh, Blair had. Uh, it, it's too simplistic to say he lied. He was forming a case so he would have the space to back Bush. He was worried too that the Conservatives were backing Bush, not the intelligent ones like Ken Clark. but Ian Duncan Smith as leader, was saying he would uh, back America without UN resolutions. So Blair tried this third way where he would get the UN resolution but would be able to back Bush. The problem with that approach is evidence that gets in the way has to be ignored and complexities uh, have to be overridden. And so Blair, who is a forensic intelligent lawyer, could have uh, scrutinised the intelligence and found its flaws if he had chosen to do so. But that would have wholly undermined his desire to be seen as this strong ally of Bush. It means, too, this um, somewhat sort of valueless approach to politics uh, that you cannot make deep judgments about the character of different administrations and so uh, although he liked Bush personally and no doubt Bush perfectly nice bloke to get on with who knows you needed to probe deeper the nature of that flawed administration it only seems relatively normal now because we've had Trump but at the time it was a uh, a dysfunctional administration. You had Cheney saying something, Rumsfeld wanting something else, Colin Powell saying something else. I remember Jack Straw, who was Foreign Secretary, telling me that he'd have a conversation with Colin Powell, work on the assumption that something had been agreed, and then find that Cheney and Rumsfeld were pursuing wholly different uh, policy objectives in relation to the build-up to Iraq. If Blair had wanted to, he could have examined the state of this dysfunctional administration and wondered whether it would be capable of uh, dealing with the aftermath of a war in a country as uh, divided as Iraq, and uh, and moved in a different way. But that would have required a wholly different approach to politics, a willingness to break with his earlier framing about 1980s Labour, never again, new Labour, strong with America, tough on defence, and so on. And as a result, we now learn 20 years on about the scale of the flawed intelligence, the limits of the UK influence. In a brilliant Radio 4 programme, one of the contributors said that t- towards the end, when the timetable was becoming so narrow for war, the Americans were finally determined to go in, this time 20 years ago. Player negotiated an extra two weeks. Delay. Uh, when it needed six months, either for the weapons to turn up or to change course because the weapons weren't turning up. And, of course, he will always argue that the war was the right thing to do, to quote him. Uh, He cannot argue any other course because uh, British soldiers were killed. The war would still have gone ahead, by the way, uh, if Britain hadn't taken part. I think it's a myth that he could have stopped the war. Because this Bush administration were determined to do it in a way that was wholly irrational and obviously so. And people warned that um after they had removed the Taliban in Afghanistan soon after September the eleventh, that in that sort of impatient way of that Bush administration, they moved on to Iraq and moved troops away from Kabul to go to get ready for Iraq, and of course the Taliban began to regroup. So the whole thing was disaster. Incidentally, the only intelligence that was right was that it would be a treasure trove for terrorists uh, if um, this invasion took place. And I say Blair could have understood all of that, but his framing of politics, his need as he saw it to maintain what I think I would call, he would always go on about, you yeah, know, we've got to get out of our comfort zone. The Labour Party's in a comfort zone. But he had his own comfort zone. He was only really at ease in politics when he was pursuing a course which had quite a lot of backing within the Conservative Party, Conservative newspapers supporting it, and um, a bit of the Labour Party against it. And of course, Iraq certainly ticked those boxes. But look what happens when things go wrong. Uh, People are very fickle. The Times did a leader on Iraq 20 years on, which was wholly scathing. Now from my memory the times backed the war as did of course the sun with great exuberant enthusiasm. Now this it, this is the limitation of his style of leadership and it's highlighted to this very day in a very different context. He and William Hague gave a joint interview on the Today program and issued a joint report about um, uh, the use of technology and how this can modernise Britain. Again, this was Tony Blair in his comfort zone, he was doing it with the Tory, and some of the ideas are very good and will make a difference. But you don't go to Tony Blair these days, or indeed actually when he was uh, Prime Minister, to deal with some of the other epic challenges around. He was never interested And I think genuinely didn't believe that things to do with um, uh, that required higher public spending was should be a kind of priority. You can do it by reform and technology and so on, somewhat vaguely. But here's the thing. Here are some of the big current issues. How do you raise money for uh, social care? Remember, this was the big pledge of Boris Johnson when he became prime minister. I have a plan for social care. They've now scrapped the so called social care levy, which wasn't anyway going to be paid for and wasn't going to pay for social care. This remains a huge issue. How? How do you revive the NHS? Now, there are, of course, reforms, that famous word that we've explored in this podcast, to reform the NHS. But investment is required, as Tony Blair belatedly discovered when he was Prime Minister. He really didn't. He thought it was all sorted at the end of the first term in terms of spending levels. Then the Mail and Robert Winston and others started saying the NHS is worse here than in Eastern Europe. And Tony Blair went onto the sofa of a David Frost programme and pledged to get the European, uh, the spending up to European levels. He didn't say how. He left that to Brown, who was apoplectic, Um, that he was going to do the tough bit. But uh, uh, Blair got the glamour of the announcement. Uh, So how do you now get the NHS up to European uh, levels of provision? Brown used to say when Tony Blair was prime minister, uh, he used to go back into his office with uh, Ed Balls and Ed Miliband sitting there. He wants tax cuts and higher public spending. You know, the sort of... um, (laughs) Uh, how you square the circle was left to the Treasury. Um, now, these, uh, given that we you know, this is again so unlike '97, we're, we're out of the European Union. We can't have access to the single market, and that access will not be possible because Keir Starmer has unequivocally ruled out joining. We've had the financial crash of 2008, the pandemic. This is a different country to '97, and some really big thinking needs to go on beyond that sort of third way where you don't say anything that can alienate a coalition of the Sun, the Times, a bit of the Conservative Party, um, and so on. You see now with Keir Starmer, it's interesting, although he's got uh, uh, some Tony Blair uh, people working for him in his office, briefing in ways that uh uh, sort of Tony Blair plus, plus, plus from that era, as I've mentioned before, I don't think Alistair Campbell uh, slagged off individuals in the way that appears to be happening every now and again, on, if you read the Times newspaper, for example. Tony Blair and Alastair Campbell were so potent in the mid-90s, they got the endorsement of the Sun. They um, neutered the other newspapers. It's not going to happen next time. I can tell you now, the Times will endorse the Conservatives at the next election and so the whole situation is different and there are lessons to be learnt from Blair's brilliance but also his deep flaws of which Iraq was uh, one such example but not the only one and you know this, this Labour Party goes from Corbynistas dominating to the ardent followers of Tony Blair dominating with nothing in between you know just one from the other and as I say if you just look out to the challenges now they are almost on the size of kind of Iraq style challenges which need really deep thinking and clever subtle politics to address rather than looking back to someone who uh, navigated the mid-90s onwards and got trapped by Iraq. Anyway, interesting stuff. It's it's one example of how leaders don't escape um, the consequences of actions. But I do stress, uh, I think the whole thing about did he and As Campbell lie was a great red herring, largely led but not wholly by a kind of a BBC frenzy uh, of Lineker-esque uh, <laughs> echoes, Um And it was a tough challenge uh, what to do uh, when America was determined to go in post-September the 11th. Um, But it needed deeper thinking uh, from a leader. And Starmer, if he wins, will face challenges on that scale right away. And Listen to the interview I did with Michael Jacobs about the economic and uh, environmental challenges. He's got to think deeply for himself and with others who have not been framed by the 97 era. And now, if it's all right with all of you, okay, let's turn to all of you uh the uh email by the way is steverick14 at icloud.com for points or arguments or questions let's begin by uh matthew Ryder. i'm enjoying your twice weekly podcast which i find very thought-provoking oh thank you and I like the eclectic range of political views but with the guests yeah we have guests um sometimes as well michael jacobs was a whole great last week really really interesting um i hope you've listened to it or can do Anyway, Matthew says, a few weeks ago you talked about Rishi Sunak's narrow path to winning the next election. I wonder whether you feel this path has widened since you put forward this theory. Rishi Sunak has some successes on the international stage, not least his agreement on Northern Ireland. Some commentators suggest that Sunak has shown a sure touch in his dealings with other countries. Uh, in addition, he appears to have given his health secretary more room to strike a pay deal with the NHS staff. I love listening to podcasts. podcast, usually when out walking. Thank you. Well, where, where do you walk, Matthew? We like an evocation of the scenery. So what, what is happening is, is interesting. Sunak is uh, he's always had this very narrow path, I won't go into it now, we haven't got time, to to staying in power after the election, where he would have to win an overall majority. It's still narrow. The opinion polls suggest he hasn't really shifted the dial at all. But you can see the strategy, which is to now claim uh, very contentiously, actually, that they've stabilised the economy. Um, They called it the budget for growth. And he is a detailed person who gets things done. I suspect, I'm only guessing, I've been talking about Tony Blair, that Tony Blair is quite an admirer of what Sunak is doing. So let's see. I think it's still the same narrow path. But what I think he has managed to do is calm the Tory parliamentary party a bit for now. In the first few weeks, when he looked out of his depth... Uh, they were just kind of in a in, in a state of kind of even more insurrectionary instincts than usual when you got people like Steve Baker to back that northern Ireland deal uh you fell to calming but by the time you most of you listened to this, we'll have had. Uh, the DUP's verdict on this framework, the ERG, you know, even with Steve Baker evangelising about it, will have their criticism. So on it goes. But I think there is that narrow path. Partly, I think, depends now on Labour and seizing this moment uh, in the right way. And it is a new moment. It's not 1997. Anyway, on to Sean uh, Coldstone. I usually watch the live stream from King's Place, but it was great to meet you in York on Friday. Yeah, Sean, I didn't realise it was you until you emailed, but I remember talking to you because I signed the books with a particular message the talk was on the Prime Ministers and the Prime Ministers we never had. And Sean wonders, are Prime Ministers really as powerful as they are often perceived? And are there any examples of those who were never Prime Minister, who might have made a significant contribution in some other way, perhaps with a more enduring legacy? Yeah, well, it was great to see you, Sean. And Prime Ministers often aren't as powerful as they seem. And in a way, that Iraq example is is one such. On one level, of course, uh, it's an example of the most potent prime ministerial power, a decision to go to war. But even then, I mean, he was very lucky to have a very subservient, unquestioning cabinet. Uh, But a lot of Labour MPs voted against uh, going to war uh, when they were being tightly whipped and when he had just won a big majority and many of them still hoped to become ministers and all the rest of it. But it highlighted the limits because by the end, Tony Blair was following an American timetable to war and and, and had become trapped. But more widely, yeah, if you look back at prime ministers, they're miserable a lot of the time because they can't do what they want to do and they face crises and they can't see the way through. Jim Callaghan always used to start singing a Welsh hymn and, and those around him knew he was in deep trouble and miserable. And yet they all want to stay on, even though they are miserable. And there are many who have influence without being prime minister. Um, the Troublemaker series on Patreon have looked at the sort of those who kind of follow a rebellious path can still change the course of things considerably. Thanks, Sean. Please you enjoyed it in York. Graham Laurie says, greetings from the West Fife countryside, where I frequently listen to your excellent podcast, oh thank you, while walking Rocco, the completely deranged, a boxer-rescued dog. He needs walking out in the country due to an unfortunate tendency to go ballistic and launch into attack mode at the mere sight of any other creature, ranging from a sparrow to a horse. Well, I don't know how you have time, Graham, to listen to the podcast with this extra responsibility. Anyway, uh, with uh, Keir Starmer triangulating enthusiastically in unofficial coalition on nine councils with Tories in Scotland, he's going to win over many hard unionist votes. But it's my belief that the vast majority of unlistened to voters as myself, unlike the Red Bull voters, of course, will be pushed further away, I have to hope that when the shock of Sturgeon's sudden resignation and the resulting chaos from the leadership contest subsides, the 45% for independence holds firm and builds once more. Yeah, well, uh, see you at the festival, the Edinburgh Festival. Yeah, see you there, Graham. Be there for the last two weeks, every day, with a different show. And Graham describes himself as the amicable cybernat, with the non-amicable dog, by the sounds of it. Well, this is the big question with implications, of course, for Scotland and the rest of the UK. The SNP contest, I've I've talked about that in a previous contest, um, and the SNP are in deep trouble at the moment. And they will elect, whoever it is, a leader uh, without, I, I suspect, the experience to meet the titanic demands. So then we get to the question Graham asks will underlying forces be so powerful that the cause of independence gains momentum or at least sustains momentum? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't think anybody does, um, because all we know is that the SNP have had these two strong leaders, uh, two of the most formidable leaders in the UK, and now they haven't. So we're going to find out. Uh, Enjoy the walking. Pete Morris, an avid listener, but very rare commenter, Of many years but I have to say the contrast between the dry inevitabilism of Danny Finkelstein and the enthusiasm of Michael Jacobs these are the two most recent interviews I've done Uh, Lord Finkelstein uh, Tory Peer columnist and Michael Jacobs who worked for Gordon Brown in number 10 as his climate change advisor and he wrote the IPPR report on the economy He's, he's been everywhere Michael Pete's a fascinating man with huge knowledge and experience. The Labour leadership would do themselves no harm listening to. Yeah, well, I hope that some some will have listened. I know, lots in the shadow cabinet uh, listen, and. Uh, yeah, I, he 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 has more ideas in a sentence than some prominent politicians have in a lifetime, um, and so it, I found it very interesting to speak to him. I, I used to know him quite well; I haven't seen him for years. Do you know what he? Um, it was the day of one of the strikes, and he cycled uh, miles and miles to get to the studio, uh, which in, I found even more impressive than any of his views. And now over to our uh, uh, driver Andy, our white van man of the cooperative. He says, I found this conclusion to the Brexit effect part of the latest OBR devastating. Uh, this is, and this is from the OBR report conclusion. Overall, while net migration has been higher than we anticipated, investment growth has been significantly weaker than we expected before the referendum, and our assumption about the impact of Brexit on the UK's trade intensity is broadly on track. As a result, we have not revised our view that productivity will be 4% lower in the long run than if the UK had remained in the EU. Yeah, back to uh, driver Andy. In my view, if I question the wisdom of uh, Brexit proponents in my world, sorry. Uh, if I question the wisdom of Brexit, proponents get aggressive, sullen, or accuse me of gloating. So it never gets discussed, and on we go. Yeah, I completely uh, yours baffled on a B road somewhere. <laughs> I, I can see you on the B road reflecting, Andy, on um, the madness that we are in. That you have these predictions of decline reinforced, repeated with more evidence and yet it is still underexplored. And again, Labour with... I'm, I'm, I quite like the uh, commitments, the, uh, the, the, the Starmer missions. I think it's a good way of driving government. But how are you going to top the uh, group of G7 in terms of sustained economic growth with this Uh, on on, on your back like sacks of coal burdening you um, as you seek to get this economy sorted. Marianne Sainsbury, the dominance of the right-wing news press seems to be treated like the weather just to be reported whereas I am incandescent about the influence of these uh, scurrilous publications and their sway over our lives. Maybe it's just that it's the water in which you swim so change seems impossible. I think Marianne's claiming that I was sounding too calm about um, the power of uh, newspapers and then their influence on the BBC, and I kind of analyse it calmly. Marianne, I I seethe about this. It's it's all an act. Anyway, before we talk about that, uh, she said, I first discovered rock and roll politics at the Edinburgh Festival years ago, but never realised it was a podcast until I came across it by accident. So it's been a great treat. Uh, come to, came, came to king 's place in December and have tickets for uh, this week oh great i 'll we'll see you at King 's place just to reassure you marion i 'll probably be quite calm at king 's place but it 's all an act it 's as much an act as watching uh Ian McKellen playing King Lear or something and and one of the things that I do get worked up about um, is is the power of the newspapers still it 's very interesting you know lots of young people don 't buy them, but they remain powerful they they seep through they influence politicians and in the way they respond and it is uh, it, it is a huge problem especially for a labour leader of the opposition and um, i kind of completely understood and supported the way tony blair and alastair campbell went out their way to new to them and you can see starmer's team trying to do it as well but they're, they're not actually you know, the, it's very interesting when they leak something on, to the Times, uh, you know, are oh, we going to smash so-and-so? Are we going to smash the left? The Times then runs a leader saying, Keir Starmer has made a start, but it's nowhere near good enough. And why doesn't he do X, Y and Z? So, yeah, and then the BBC read these It's why I won't, I won't repeat it again, cause, but in 10 seconds, uh, the reason the BBC gave the Lineker affair such prominence when he first tweeted before he was suspended was because the Telegraph and the Mail splash with it on their front pages. It is a factor in Britain it being like it is. And it is a factor as to why we have such crap public services, because it's taboo to say you need more investment and that tax might have to go up. Um, instead, tax is a burden and has to come down. I heard Lisa Nandy uh, say she wanted to bring taxes down under a Labour government. fine. Um, but what about these public services? And I know Tony Blair and I say, look, it's reform, that's what you do. And you're either reform or anti reform. It's not as simple as that, as he found out with the NHS when he was Prime Minister. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? With me, Roz Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. Now, Helen the Baker wrote, I always like Helen the Baker because she wants baked me some bread. Um, and she sort of uh, said, you know, okay, fine. Uh, the last podcast was about Lineker and the BBC, the last one before the interview one. And she said, yeah, OK, f- focus on that if you want, but there are far more important things around. Well, I I, can't, I, could, I th- hope I said there are more important things around Helen, although it is symptomatic of um, something deeper. As I say, it's this dance between the BBC, the Mail in particular, the Telegraph, the Times. Times a huge influence on the BBC. But she says, when I arrived at work, the junior doctors were out on their picket line and that will continue until tomorrow while emergency cover is provided by uh, senior medical staff. Uh, my 14-year-old daughter's school was closed today and will be again tomorrow because of the teachers' strike and the tube isn't running today due to strike action. So my point is that there are far more important issues affecting our day-to-day lives than the BBC, beloved institution, though it is. Uh, rant over. returning to baking whilst listening to podcasts to restore my peace of mind, uh, Helen the Baker. Yeah, yeah, well, actually there's a kind of related one from a uh, uh, a listener from Australia who wonders what the BBC are doing dumping things like dateline london which offered the uh, kind of a, a a less parochial approach to uh tv output um yeah and uh yeah well there are lots of things going on uh within the BBC that needs uh a huge amount of uh, scrutiny look there are tons more um of emails uh and i'm going to what i'm going to do is for the second podcast this week read a few more out um and uh oh yeah i'm just going going down there there's one from uh lizzie who uh i met on the south bank whilst going to a uh, show and she was saying she couldn't agree more about Lewis Goodall being made a great would have been made a great political editor at the BBC. it would been fantastic. But they let him go without any attempt to keep him because newspapers were saying he was biased to the left and all this nonsense. Anyway, well, look, um, I've got loads more to read out, uh, but maybe uh, later this week when we gather again to make uh, sense of it all. But thank you very much uh, for listening. Uh, There's a huge amount going on. Cancel everything on Wednesday afternoon if you've listened to this podcast before Wednesday afternoon with Johnson in front of the Privileges Committee. Cancel everything to uh, get to Birmingham or King's Place or Belfast for our live shows. Um, And, yeah, let's gather together on the podcast again very soon as well. Thanks so much for tuning in. Do leave a review if you can. Gets us up the charts. We're all obsessed with the charts. It's like, I don't know, the battle between Oasis and... um uh, those other Britpop bands in the 90s or T-Rex versus Slade for older listeners anyway thanks very much take care, see you soon, bye